Hello, I'm Chris Hale, and welcome to Season 2 of the Dadcast, a podcast that provides read-alouds of short fiction, poetry, and scholarly articles to help a university student. The coffee mug is filled, breakfast cake is served, and the dogs have been walked. Let's get ready for the next episode of the Dadcast. Enjoy. Themes in Greek Society and Culture Chapter 6, Connecting to the Divine, Greek Cult and Ritual, by Bonnie McLaughlin. In 1755, a bronze tablet was discovered in southern Italy in an area that had been settled by Greek colonists. The text, mainly intact, was inscribed in the 4th or 3rd century BCE and composed by or for a woman named Calyra. She denounced two individuals for stealing from her, demanding that they make a payment to a goddess and suffer physically until this was done. Calyra transferred responsibility for retrieving her possessions to religious officials. Calyra consecrates to the attendants of the goddess her cloak, the dark-colored one that someone took and is not giving back, and uses it and knows where it is. Let this person dedicate to the goddess twelve times its worth, with half a medimnus of incense as the city requires. May the one who has my cloak not breathe freely until he makes the dedication to the goddess. Calyra consecrates to the attendants of the goddess the three gold coins that Melita took and is not giving back. Let her dedicate to the goddess twelve times their worth with amidimnus of incense as the city requires. May she not breathe freely until she has made the dedication to the goddess. If she should drink with me or eat with me and I not know it or go under the same roof as I, may I be unharmed. While inscribing a curse on a tablet was not unusual in the Greek or Roman worlds, the inscriptions were usually much shorter, etched into lead rather than the more expensive bronze, rolled up, pierced with a nail, and buried in the ground with the intention of attracting the attention of underworld powers. Calyra's tablet was pierced at the top as if to be hung in a public place. With references to the goddess, the place may have been a temple, and since the text is in the Locretian dialect and found not far from western Locri, the famous Locrian temple of Persephone might well have been the location of Calyra's ultimatum. In the mythical narrative that lay behind cults of Persephone, numerous in the Greek West, she was the daughter of the grain goddess Demeter, abducted as a girl to become the bride of Hades, the god of the underworld, and remained with him for a part of each year. By turning over the stolen objects to divinity, Calyra, in effect, makes the thieves temple robbers and subject to retribution from powers much greater than she possesses. There is a magical component to the text, with the binding formula constraining the thieves' breathing, one of many examples that display an often seamless connection between religion and magic in the ancient Greek world. With the couplet that closes the curse, Calyra asks that she not be the subject to the religious pollution that would attach to Melita upon being cursed. Claiming that the thief owes a medimnus of incense, the considerable amount of approximately a bushel and a half, as the city requires, Calyra indicates that she, a woman, feels entitled to situate her demands in a civic context. This text has been compared to 13 other tablets found in a sanctuary of Demeter and other underworld gods in Sididnes, a Greek city located in what is modern Turkey. The Snidian tablets were also perforated in order to be hung, and many were commissioned by women. 
several contain allegations of theft, but also of unscrupulous business practices. Some target women who had lured away other women's husbands. What is striking about all these tablets is that Greek women living in what was largely a patriarchal culture were exercising agency. This may be explained, as will be described below, by the fact that cults connected with Persephone and Demeter afforded women the opportunity to be outspoken. Not having the same access as men to the Greek judicial system, they employed an informal but powerful means of achieving justice, much like our unofficial but effective use of social media today. Introduction The fact that Calira's curse functioned in both a religious and civic context is symptomatic of the fact that in the ancient world, the modern division between sacred and secular simply did not apply. This chapter traces the broad contours of this continuum in the Greek world from the Bronze Age to the Hellenistic period, where temples and sanctuaries were placed for the celebration of a variety of gods, but also for feasting and strengthening social bonds, all of which offered the potential to accumulate prestige and power for communities, locally and abroad. In most cases, religious functionaries serve specific gods, but only part-time, leaving them free to celebrate other divinities and to engage in various aspects of public and private life. Private vows, curses, or dedications to the gods could also be public statements. Some rituals were personally transformative, leaving participants with a sense that their status had been enhanced, which could affect their performance outside the religious concept, context, like Kalira engaging both religious and civic powers for her own benefit. The religious life of ancient Greeks informed their personal and collective identity in a dynamic way. From the beginning, the Aegean Bronze Age. Although there were Neolithic agricultural settlements throughout Crete, it is with the Minoans and the Bronze Age civilization on this island that we can begin to explore the religious life that left its mark on the Greeks. We divide Minoan culture into old and new palace periods, punctuated by the collapse and rebuilding that may be related to earthquakes and volcanic eruptions on the nearby island of Thera, which is modern-day Santorini, between the mid-17th and mid-16th centuries BCE. For details of Minoan religious life, we are dependent on the visual record, since the written texts that survive have not been deciphered. Frescoes in the palaces and scenes carved into miniature seals and gold rings make it clear that bulls were central to Minoan cult activity. Open-air sanctuaries have been found with altars topped by stone representations of bull's horns, and the many large and small replicas of the double-headed axe are likely reflections of an implement used in bull sacrifices. Another central figure in Minoan religion was clearly a goddess. Small statuettes and cult scenes carved into seals and rings depict a female figure wielding snakes or a spear, sometimes accompanied by lions or birds, dancing women, and possibly male votaries. An interpretation of the images is difficult without text to support them, but most scholars agree that these are depictions of an epiphany. Minoan sanctuaries located in open spaces, caves, and mountain peaks are an indication that religious life was fundamentally connected to the natural environment, contrasting with the latter practice of fixing cult divinities in a temple building. Weapons and double axes were found in Cretan cave sanctuaries, and shedding blood through sacrifice was clearly central to Minoan cult life. After the serious destruction wrought by a major volcanic eruption on Thera, the center of political and cultural domination in the region shifted to the mainland and to the Mycenaean Greek civilization. 
There was not a strong cultural break, however, owing to Minoan immigration from Crete and, in turn, a Mycenaean presence on the island. Among the votive collections are goddess figurines, but also male idols and statuettes of both male and female worshippers. Sacrificial activity continued for slaughtering stones and animal bones had been found near Mycenaean altars. The wealth and power of the palaces and civil Mycenaean centers, like Mycenae, Pelos, or Thebes, fueled the mythological and religious traditions recorded in the Homeric epics, the Iliad and Odyssey, which were composed in the 8th and 7th centuries BCE. The claim that these texts were composed by a single author, called Homer, is controversial. Hence, modern practice refers to the epics as Homeric. Two centuries later, the Greek historian Herodotus recorded the impact that the Homeric record and that of Hesiod had on later Greek religious life. Hesiod's theogony described the birth of the cosmos emerging from a gap, the Greek word is chaos, in primal matter. There was no creator. Elements like day and night simply appeared and gave rise to a succession of gods. Mythical narratives in the Iliad and the Odyssey attached names and functions to the gods that were retained by the Greeks thereafter. There were local variations, of course, in narratives and ritual practices, but the general picture was consistent throughout the Greek world until the Hellenistic period. The Greeks located their major divinities on Mount Olympus, hence they were known as the Olympians. Zeus was king of the gods on Olympus and the supreme arbiter of justice. He was often depicted with the principal emblem of his power, the thunderbolt, or with the scales of justice. He was not above partisan decisions, however, nor passionate liaisons that infuriated his wife. Hera was sister and wife of Zeus. As queen, she was sometimes shown holding a scepter. Goddess of marriage, she was patron of married women. Harsh and vindictive towards children from Zeus's extramarital affairs, she failed in her attempts to retaliate or to assert her independence on Olympus. Poseidon was a brother of Zeus. God of the turbulent ocean and earthquakes, he was feared for his elemental energy at sea and on land. He was frequently shown holding a trident. Hades was a brother of Zeus, god of the underworld and ruler over the dead. He abducted Persephone to his realm to be his wife. Although not inhabiting Olympus, he is included in this list for his familial connections to Zeus and his importance to the Greek pantheon. Demeter was sister of Zeus and the goddess of grain and agriculture, so was frequently depicted holding a sheaf of wheat. When she carries a torch in a piglet, this reflects widespread nocturnal fertility rites in her honor. She was the mother of Persephone. Athena was born in full armor from the head of her father Zeus. She was the goddess of military strategy, wisdom, and craft, especially weaving. Her principal attributes were the owl, the scepter, helmet, and spear. In myth, she was the protector of heroes like Odysseus and Heracles. Apollo was the son of Zeus and god of prophecy, music, and healing. He was frequently shown with the lyre or the bow and arrow. He was celebrated at oracular shrines like Delphi and was patron of boys during their transition to adulthood. Artemis was the twin sister of Apollo and goddess of the young, humans and animals, virginity, childbirth, and hunting. She protected girls, women, and young animals, but was also blamed for their deaths. Her images depict her with a bow and arrow, hunting hounds or deer. Ares was the son of Zeus and Hera, or of Hera alone. He was the god of war and violence. 
and is usually shown with a helmet and shield. His passion for Aphrodite is described in the Odyssey, where their adultery was discovered and exposed by her husband, Hephaestus. Aphrodite was born from the sea foam when the primal sky god Uranus was castrated by his son Cronus and his genitals thrown into the sea. She was the goddess of erotic desire and sexual activity, and was often shown with a dove, a lotus flower, or a rose. Hephaestus was the son of Zeus and Hera, or of Hera alone. Patron of the blacksmith's forge, he was often depicted with an anvil and tongs. He was also the divine overseer of metalworking, including jewelry. In the Homeric account, he was married to Aphrodite. Hermes was the son of Zeus and a nymph. He was the messenger god and leader of souls to the underworld, so was frequently shown wearing the broad-brimmed traveler's hat and winged sandals while carrying the caduceus, a staff with two snakes entwined. Hestia was the goddess of the hearth and domesticity. She was identified with the hearth flame and received gifts of food at family meals. Dionysus was the son of Zeus and the Theban princess Semele. He was the god of wine, theater, and the afterlife. He was often shown surrounded by grape leaves, holding a wine cup, or the thrysis, a staff entwined with ivy and topped with a pine cone that was carried by his female worshippers. Clay tablets preserved from Mycenaean palaces were written in a form of Greek, hence they are decipherable. They contain palace inventories primarily, but also record the names of several gods who appear in the Homeric poems, including Poseidon, Zeus, Hera, Hermes, Dionysus, and the birth goddess, Elisathea. There is not a great deal of evidence for Mycenaean temples, but recent excavations have uncovered buildings that housed altars and idols. Around 1200 BCE, there was once again a dramatic shift in power. Although the cause is still in dispute, Mycenaean citadels collapsed. The written record disappears, and as a result, scholars sometimes refer to this 400-year period as the Dark Ages. The Archaic and Classical Periods Renewed trade, migration, and colonization brought Greeks into contact with other people throughout the Mediterranean, and significant political and cultural shifts occurred between the Archaic and Classical Periods. When Athens led the forces that defeated the Persians who invaded Greece in 490 BCE and 480 BCE, Wealth and political and cultural leadership became concentrated in this city-state, introducing the classical period. Despite these changes, religious activity was relatively consistent throughout and will be treated here as an on a continuum. Throughout, a written and iconographic record informs us about religious life. Religious Spaces The shrines of the gods now included temples, built in some, but not all, sanctuaries. The temple was not normally entered by cult participants, whose ritual activities such as sacrificing took place in front of the building, facing east. The temple housed the god, represented by a cult statue, placed on a pedestal just inside the front face of the temple, where it would be visible to the worshippers. Behind this space was an inner room that was accessible only to priests, priestesses, and other religious officials. Because of their security, temples came to be used for the depositing of items of value. The temple-like architecture of many modern banks reflects this practice. Cult statues, originally made of wood, began to be sculpted from marble during the 7th century BCE. Some were magnificent and of considerable size, such as the classical statue of Zeus in his temple at Olympia, which is 13 meters high and was later regarded as one of the seven wonders of the world. 
Most gods were depicted as standing, although several, including that of Zeus at Olympia and those of many goddesses, were seated on a throne. In the Iliad, we learn of a temple of Athena on the Trojan Acropolis where the priestess Theano opened the door to admit Queen Hecuba, who laid a fine peplos on the lap of the goddess, hoping that the goddess would support Trojan petitions for help against the Greeks. The poet tells us that Athena turned her head aside, a signal that the prayer would not be heeded. This passage makes it clear that by the 8th century BCE, there were temples with doors. Sanctuaries without buildings, however, continued to function, located on a piece of land reserved for ritual activities. Participants purified themselves with water from a basin placed at the entrance. Like temples, sanctuaries possessed an altar, and the entire precinct belonged to the god. In addition to sacrificing or presenting other gifts in a sanctuary, worshippers normally poured libations, frequently of wine, but sometimes with milk or honey. Libations would be followed by prayer, invoking the god with appropriate forms of address followed by words of praise and an account of the petitioner's past practice of honoring the divinity. Then the petitioner presented a request or words of gratitude. Religious activities shaped the identity of Greek men and women across their lifespan. Rituals for young men. In Athens, boys on the threshold of manhood were called aphibes. Identifying with the youthful god Apollo, described as unshorn, they would mark the beginning of their transition to adulthood by a haircutting ceremony. This was most often a private family event. Frequently, a lock of the boy's hair would be dedicated to a god, placing him and his successful coming of age under the protection of divinity. Athenian Ephebes were presented by their fathers to their fratries, brotherhoods, as they had been at birth. The fratry was a regional Athenian institution dating back to the early Iron Age, with a cult center and patron god, and membership in a fratry qualified Athenian males for citizenship. This membership was confirmed at an annual religious festival called the Apatoria, where each father took a vow that the boy was his legitimate son, while presenting a lock of the boy's hair and a sacrificial victim for the divine patron. The claim to legitimacy could be challenged by another member of the fratry, but if it was successful, the sacrifice was held and the meat distributed to the members. At age 18, the Athenian Ephebe, having become a citizen, joined his peers for a period of two years. Instituted in the 4th century BCE, the Athenian Ephebia required young men to undergo military training and do community service. Phoebes prepared themselves for civic duty by attending sessions of the Citizen Political Assembly and by touring the regional sanctuaries, escorting festival processions, and making offerings. At the beginning of this period of service, they swore an oath that, in a process that began at birth and continued throughout their life, demonstrated the overlap between civic and religious life. Here is an excerpt of the oath cited by the orator Lycurgus in the 4th century BCE. I will not bring shame upon those sacred weapons, nor will I abandon my comrade in arms wherever I am on the march. I will mount a defense on behalf of things holy and lawful, and I will hand over the fatherland not lesser but greater and better, both as far as I am able and together with everyone. I will hold in honor the ancestral holy things. The Athenian oath ended with a call for the gods. Together, with the country's borders and its produce, to witness the pledge, 
another sign of the integration of religion into day-to-day life. In Crete, according to a historian from the 4th century BCE, elite youths would be taken to houses reserved for men, waiting on the adults and receiving little food or drink until age 17. When they were gathered together, supervised by adults in athletic and military activities, and partnered with an adult in a sexual relationship. They danced in choruses during religious festivals, learning the laws, singing hymns to the gods, and inciting praises of brave men. Rituals for Young Women Greek girls and women were under the protection of the goddess Artemis. Every four years, there was a festival for girls at Brauron, 37 kilometers east of Athens, called the Arctia, marking the girls' transition to adolescence by playing the bear. A myth associated with this ritual refers to a she-bear given to Artemis in the sanctuary of Brauron. When a girl teased the bear, it scratched her, and her brothers killed it. As a consequence, the Athenians suffered a plague or a famine, and after consulting the oracle of Delphi, they were told to institute the Arctea to appease Artemis for the loss of her bear. At the festival, the girls dressed in special robes, danced, paraded, sacrificed, ran foot races, and made dedications that included implements for wood, woolworking and weaving, along with woven garments. A fragmentary stone inscription from the sanctuary provides a catalog of some of their dedicated clothing. Calipé, a little tunic, scalloped and embroidered, it has letters woven in. Shariope and Ecoline, a dotted tunic in a box. There is an embroidered sea purple tunic in a box. Thyene and Malthace dedicated it. Philae, a woman's belt. Fidelia, a white woman's cloak in a box. Manesso, a frog green garment. Civic involvement in the Brauron festival and its significance for the entire Athenian state are reflected in an inscription from the mid-4th century CE that guaranteed support for the upkeep of this sanctuary, dedicated to the goddess for the salvation of the Athenian people. Decorated small clay pots found at the site contain images of girls accompanied by older women, and the prevalence of other artifacts connected with weaving suggests that the ritual served to prepare the girls for work that would be central to their lives as married women. Each year, two Athenian girls from prominent families were selected as Arephoroi, carriers of secret things, and they remained on the Acropolis to assist the priestess of Athena Polias, Athena of the city, with the weaving of peplos for the goddess. While these girls, representative of their age mates, were being mentored in woolworking through ritual, they also engaged in a nocturnal rite that represented another aspect of their future life, sexuality. In the 2nd century CE, the Greek traveler and antiquarian Pausanias claimed that the girls were given secret things at night and descended below the Acropolis to deposit them in a sanctuary of the love goddess, Aphrodite. The myth connected with this ritual involved an attempted rape of Athena by the god Hephaestus, who ejaculated on her thigh. Wiping off the semen with wool, she threw it on the earth, and from this the child Erichthonius was born. She placed the baby in a basket and entrusted him to the daughters of the first king of Athens, warning them not to look inside. But they did so, and, frightened by the snakes guarding the child, they threw themselves off the Acropolis to their deaths. Erichthonius eventually became king of Athens and instituted the major festival for Athena, the Panathenia, at which the peplos woven by the Arephoria was presented. 
Prior to their marriage, well-born Athenian girls were selected for other public ritual tasks, such as becoming basket carriers, carrying implements used in the sacrifice at the Panathenia, including the sacrificial knife, the barley to be sprinkled on the victim, and the ribbon that would adorn the animal before it was killed. Throughout the Greek world, young unmarried women also served as hydrophoria, bringing water that would be used for sharpening the sacrificial knife or for sprinkling on the altar or the victim. Girls also participated in choruses, singing and dancing in honor of a divinity, and poet-songwriters composed Parthenia, maiden songs, those created in Sparta during the late 7th century BCE by the poet Alcman highlighted the beauty of the girls, their closeness to one another, their fine attire, and their pride in the skill of their performance. As they prepared for marriage, girls marked the transition by dedicating to the gods emblems of their childhood. Often this was a lock of hair, and Artemis was the recipient. But such items were also presented to mythical heroines who had died young, or to Aphrodite, Athena, or to Hera as a goddess of marriage. Pollution and Purification For the Greeks, pollution occurred from contact with individuals or events that threatened the religious, social, and political boundaries, ensuring the smooth ordering of community life. Calyra feared becoming polluted through contact with a thief. Pollution, miasma, was akin to dirt and required removal, particularly before an encounter with the gods. Hence, the water basin was a feature of all sanctuaries. In addition to the use of water, purification was also accomplished with fumigation or by covering oneself or a polluted space with dirt and then removing it. Contact with women in childbirth or with the dead was polluting. A sacred law from the island of Chios in the 5th century BCE specified that only a limited number of women, kinfolk of the dead, were permitted in the house where a corpse had been laid and had to purify themselves by pouring water from jugs over their heads before resuming social contact with others. The Dead and the Living, a Ritual Tie As Sophocles demonstrated, the unavenged victim of a killing could infect the living, and in other instances the dead exerted agency. At funerals, the Greeks seemed to have anticipated a posthumous banquet celebration for the deceased, depositing drink cups and dishes at their tombs. There is also evidence for a Greek belief in the vengeance of spirits of individuals who had died prematurely, but whose anger could not be harnessed. For the Greeks, death did not fully sever ties between the dead and the living, and the link was nurtured by ritual. The Anthisteria The Anthisteria was a spring festival that celebrated the annual opening of jars of wine that had been produced in the autumn. In Athens, the celebration took place in a sanctuary of Dionysus, the god of wine, in a ritual space that was opened only on this occasion. People, including the enslaved, brought their new wine in from the countryside around Athens. When the wine jars were opened, libations were poured for the god, followed by a wine-drinking contest. Although there was no evidence that women participated in the drinking, it seems that small children did, for images of them have been found painted on miniature wine jugs found in the sanctuary. The celebration took place against a dark backdrop, however. The drinking occurred in silence, and the presence of the ghostly dead was felt. All other sanctuaries were closed, and household doors were painted shut with pitch, presumably to keep out the dead. The festival concluded with a period of ill omen that acknowledged the presence of the dead wandering among the living. Cult Heroes and Heroines 
Some Greek mythical heroes and heroines and mortals who had lived oversized lives received cult honors after their deaths. The focus of the cult was the individual's tomb. In the case of mythical heroes such as Theseus or Orestes, we learn of tombs being prepared for bones exhumed from Bronze Age burials and reburied as if they belonged to individuals from the mythical past. Commemorations were local, and the identity of both the individuals and the community was forged when libations, sacrifices, and feasting took place at the hero's tomb or at a special building called a Harun. With the strengthening of civic bonds that accompanied the rise of city-states, old family ties were weakened. A local hero or heroine provided a common ancestor, often mythical, but sometimes an individual with ties to the community. The choice of hero was many times decreed by the Delphic Oracle when consulted by a community in crisis. Many heroes and heroines were regarded as kindly helpers and were called upon for assistance in battle, seafaring, or childbirth. Others were less kind, and the purpose of the hero cult was chiefly appeasement. One such frightening figure was Cleomedes of Astypalia, who killed his opponent during a boxing match. When the umpires refused to give him the prize, he went mad and attacked a school in the town, pulling down a pillar that supported the roof and killing all 60 children inside. He escaped, however, and the citizens of Astypalia were advised by Delphi to pay honors to Cleomedes as a hero. The energy of these oversized figures was harnessed for the good of the community. Enemies once dead could be converted into powerful protectors. Cult heroines were mainly mythical figures, frequently young women who had died an untimely death as virgins. Some, like Iphigenia, the daughter of King Agamemnon of Mycenae, offered themselves as sacrificial victims for the benefit of their people. Iphigenia became a cult heroine at Brarun. Like those of some heroes, the tombs of heroines who had posed a threat, such as those of the legendary Amazons, warrior women who invaded Greece, also became a community focal point. Mystery Religions Eleusis Greek cult heroes and heroines could have an afterlife among the living, but ordinary mortals found other means of escaping the finality of death. About 19 kilometers from Athens was Eleusis, a center for cult activities honoring Demeter that reached back to the Bronze Age. By the 6th century BCE, the ritual celebrated not only Demeter's powers as goddess of agriculture, especially grain, but her ability to confer upon her worshippers a state of blessedness that would continue beyond the grave. This transformation was supported by the mythical account of the abduction of her daughter to become the bride of Hades, then Persephone's return to the upper world where she rejoined the living for part of each year. Those wishing to obtain special status through Demeter's ritual at Eleusis became initiates. The process occurred over two years in two phases. During the first phase, the lesser mysteries and initiates, who included men, women, and the enslaved and foreigners, sacrificed a piglet and purified themselves by bathing. In the following year, they joined a procession of those preparing for a secret revelation during the greater mysteries. During the procession, the participants stopped to sacrifice, dance, and sing. For the final initiation, those who qualified entered the Hall of Revelations, the Telesterion, wandering in darkness and confusion as they listened to sounds of lament for the lost daughter of Demeter. The subsequent rituals were shrouded in secrecy. 
But what evidence we possess indicates that something was revealed dramatically in a blaze of light, experienced as an epiphany of the goddess, followed by a sacrifice with feasting. Water was poured to the east and west as participants cried out rain, and as they looked to the sky and conceive while looking at the earth. A reflection of the agrarian roots of the festival and the Greek beliefs in a connection between fertility in nature and in humans. Dionysic Orphic Mysteries The Eleusinian was the best known of the mysteries and initiated a large number of people. There were other rites of transformation, however, which also held out the promise of an afterlife for participants. Dionysus was sometimes partnered with Persephone as the divine guarantor of this promise. We see this reflected in gold or bone tablets buried with the dead and found in Greek burials, often far from the mainland. A gold tablet of the 4th century BCE from Hipponion, a Greek colony in southern Italy, contains a lengthy inscription giving instructions to the soul of the deceased for successful travels in the underworld. Then closes by indicating that this is a sacred way traveled by other Mystea and Bakoi, initiates of Dionysic rites. From a sanctuary of Dionysus and other gods in Olbia, on the west coast of the Black Sea, came small bone tablets inscribed with the words that connected Dionysus with a cult that attached itself to the legendary singer Orpheus, whose musical enabled him to descend to the underworld and return. On one tablet, with a reference to Dionysus and Orpheus, we can read a sequence of words, life, death, life, truth, suggesting that the tablet belonged to a person anticipating both an afterlife and the possession of otherworldly vision. Women's Rituals for Demeter and Persephone Initiation in rituals for Demeter, Dionysus, and Orpheus gave men and women a sense of entitlement to a special status in both life and death. In other rituals for Demeter, the experience was different. The Thesmorphia, probably the most widespread of all religious festivals in the Greek world, was in most cases restricted to women. A medieval commentator on a text of Lucian, a Greek writer of the 2nd century CE, described the Thesmorphia as mysteries, reflecting the secretive nature of the rituals, but also suggesting that the encounter with divine gave participants an otherworldly experience. In Athens, the festival was restricted to married women and took place in the fall over three days. Details from a variety of ancient sources permit us to sketch the broad outlines of the Athenian festival's ritual activities. On the first day, the Anados, the ascent, women left the city center and on a nearby hill constructed simple accommodations for themselves with huts made of leaves and pine branches. They established a governing body for the duration of the festival, electing priestesses and managers for the ritual events. The civic respect for the festival is indicated by the fact that their expenses were covered by men and that on the second day, prisoners were released and activities in law courts and council meetings suspended. During the second phase, the nestia, a word implying fasting and lamentation, the women abstained from food while sitting on special branches laid on the ground. During the last phase, the Kalangenia, beautiful birth, they likely sacrificed and feasted, making offerings to Demeter. Fertility was clearly a focus of the Thesmorphia, both agricultural and human. Piglets had been thrown into pits prior to the festival, and during the Thesmorphia, designated women climbed down to fetch the rotting remains, which they placed on the altar. 
These would be mixed with seeds during the fall planting. The Lucian commentator links some of the ritual activities with the mythical narrative of Demeter's loss and recovery of her daughter, and it is not difficult to find a correlation between the story as recorded in the Homeric hymn to Demeter and some other features of the Thesmorphia. In the hymn, Demeter, in her anger and grief, disguised herself as an old woman, refusing food and sitting by a well in Eleusius, grieving silently. Taken in by the local royal family as a nursemaid, she kept her silence until provoked to laughter by a servant girl, Ayambe, who performed an obscene gesture. The first stage of the goddess's recovery that would only be complete with the return of Persephone. A writer from the 2nd century BCE mentions that the women at the Thesmorphia engaged in obscene joking and mocking, and the Lucian commentator mentions that the women who retrieved the rotting piglet remains from the pits also supplied dough pastries in the shapes of snakes and male phalluses. Women and Bacchic Mysteries Extraordinary behavior was also characteristic of Greek women's Mandaic festivals, rituals performances for Dionysus, arousing in them a type of madness, a mania. This usually involved leaving the city for wilder areas such as mountainsides, where the women experienced an encounter with a god. They danced wildly in a state of ecstasis, which means standing outside oneself, somewhat like ecstasy. Exactly what activities were involved is uncertain, and doubtless they varied from place to place. Our understanding of these mysteries is heavily influenced by a dramatic rendering of Meandism in Euripides' Bacchae, a tragic play first produced in 405 BCE, in which Meanads turn savage when faced with male intruders and tear apart both animals and humans. Dionysus, god of eternal passions, heightened by wine drinking, represented the throbbing, untamed life force that would be enhanced by frenzied dancing. Vase paintings depict Meanads dancing with their hair unbound, dressed in animal skins while wielding the Dionysic wand, the thrysis, like a weapon, confirming the picture of Euripides' play of a ritual that released the wildness in women. Like some other events in the play, the description of Meanads with weapons is evidence that the experience of Dionysic ecstasis invited gender reversal. Gaining access to hidden knowledge. The Oracle at Delphi. Delphi, northwest of Athens, is a place that continues to inspire awe in all who visit it. Perched on a ledge of the steep slope of Mount Parnassus, surrounded by mountains and deep gorges frequently cloaked in mist, it was the site of a major sanctuary of Apollo. Here was the famous Oracle, a place for consultation by cities and individuals who were faced with important decisions. It was, unlike other cult sites, a full-time religious center, welcoming advising Greeks and non-Greeks alike. Famous kings like Goldrich Crucius of Lydia consulted it, and he, like other wealthy consultants, left generous gifts for the sanctuary. Delphi's wealth was already proverbial in the Iliad, and it played a crucial role in many of the critical events in Greece's history, advising on political alliances, colonization, and in religious matters. With consultations involving political matters, there was no doubt room for corruption of the religious officials. The priests at Delphi were selected from local, powerful families, and two of them were appointed for life. They were assisted in their ritual duties by five holy men, whose duties included offering purifications for individuals carrying pollution. This is represented mythically by Orestes, 
who sought purification here after murdering his mother. There must have been a sizable staff of other functionaries to look after the visitors and their dedications. The best known religious official was the Pythia, the prophetic priestess who channeled the voice advice of Apollo and delivered it to petitioners who previously had sprinkled themselves with water at the basin just inside the sanctuary, paid a fee, and made a pre preliminary gift of a goat sacrifice. Each Pythia began her service as an older woman, as we learn from Diodorus, a Sicilian historian of the first century BCE. In the distant past, he tells us, the Pythia was a virgin, innocent and pure. She would be an appropriate means of conveying the voice of the god. One inquirer, however, abducted a young Pythia and raped her, and the Delphians passed a law that thereafter the Pythia should be over 50 years of age, but dressed as a virgin. Her preparations on the day of consultation were elaborate. She bathed in the nearby Castilian spring, then entered the temple and its inner room. Vase paintings depict her as seated on a large tripod, crowned with laurel leaves and holding a laurel branch in her hand while burning on the altar leaves from this tree that was sacred to Apollo. How the Pythia received the god's voice is shrouded in mystery. Some ancient and modern writers claim that the fumes from the burning leaves engulfed her as she became inspired by the god's powers. Others suggest that she ate laurel leaves, which are in fact tough and would be difficult to chew, and became intoxicated by their prussic acid. Some claim she hypnotized herself. Plutarch, a writer of the 1st and 2nd centuries CE who had been a Delphic priest at the Oracle, claimed that vapors may have arisen from a cleft in the rock under the tripod and induced her trance. Archaeologists have confirmed that this was possible for intoxicating vapors, including ethylene, are released from a fissure under the temple's inner room. Over 600 Delphic oracular responses are available to us through quotations ranging from those found in the Homeric Iliad to the 4th century CE. Some are fictitious and many are, enigma are enigmatic, such as the answer to the Lydian king Croesus when he consulted the god over whether to attack the Persians. He was told by the Pythia that if he did so, he would destroy a great empire. He mistakenly believed that the destruction referred to his enemies, so he went to war but was defeated and lost his kingdom. Athenians fared better in interpreting the response to their inquiry about what to do in the face of the Persian invasion in 480 BCE. Told by the Pythia to build a wooden wall, they initially thought of constructing a wall between Athens and its port city, Piraeus, as a means of importing supplies or as an escape route. The general Themistocles persuaded them instead that this meant they should build a fleet of wooden ships and attack the Persians at sea, this interpretation resulted in their decisive victory in a sea battle at Salamis. In addition to consulting the oracle, people flocked to Delphi for the annual festival of Apollo, where every four years athletic games were held and victors were crowned with laurel leaves. During the festival, the god was celebrated by a chorus in procession chanting a paean, a cult song associated with celebration and prayers for healing one of many indications that religious activities were embedded in nearly all events important to the Greeks. Delphi was only one of several oracular shrines in the Greek world, and consultation techniques varied. At Zeus's oracle, located at Dodona in northwest Greece, priests answered queries for petitioners by interpreting the rustling of leaves of the great oak tree in the sanctuary or the flight of doves. At Trophonius at Boeotia, inquirers were lowered into a deep hole in the ground 
And ancient sources tell us that the oracular consultation coincided with mysteries that had ties to Eleusius. Healing Sanctuaries Asclepius, the mythical son of Apollo, was the god of healing. And in his sanctuaries, patients slept, undergoing incubation, and received through dreams information about their illness or techniques for curing it. We too recognize that dreams can carry information about ourselves that is normally inaccessible. For the Greeks, dreams would be supplied by spirits of the dead. Asclepius had underworld associations and was represented by snakes, whom the Greeks believed to have special powers since they could disappear under the earth and return and could shed aging skins and be rejuvenated. Compare this with the snakes entwined around the modern medical symbol of the Caduceus staff of Hermes, a god who was, who was entrusted with shepherding souls of the dead to the underworld. Testimonies from the experience of incubation at healing sanctuaries have survived in dedicatory plaques and include references to snakes licking an affected body part. Several of the testimonies were from women suffering from childlessness or difficult pregnancies. In one of these, a woman records her dream of seeing the god approach her with a snake that crept behind him. She had intercourse with the snake and within a year had two sons. Polytheism and Impiety Because the Greeks accepted an array of gods, new ones could be introduced at any time as need arose. Sometimes this was provoked by a crisis such as the plague in Athens of 430 to 426 BCE when the cult of Asclepius was brought into the city from Epidaurus. At other times, political considerations were a factor, such as forging alliances between states. The approval of a new cult was the responsibility of the city, not religious officials or an individual. Religious life for the Greeks was dynamic, not static, and evolved with the community's needs but it was not without limits. What was not permitted to anyone was introducing a new god privately or neglecting or denying the state-sanctioned traditional gods. This amounted to asabia, impiety, and would endanger the entire city from the loss of divine protection. In 399 BCE, Socrates was put to death for having challenged traditional religious beliefs and practices while relying upon a semi-divine spirit, his personal daemon, a dramatic account of Socrates' trial for Asabia and his death is found in Plato's Apology. Hellenistic Religion As a result of the campaigns of Alexander the Great, 334-323 BCE, the Greek world was greatly expanded, and immigration began from the mainland to places newly brought under Greek control, such as kingdoms east and south of the Mediterranean like Babylon and Egypt. After Alexander's death, during what came to be known as the Hellenistic period, Greek settlers intermingled freely with the local populations, and there was a widespread reciprocal cultural exchange that included religion. Greek gods and rituals adapted to meet the needs of these hybrid populations, and referred to these changes as syncretism. The Egyptian goddess Isis, whose mythical narrative described her grieving, searching for, and reviving her murdered brother and lover Osiris, was accepted because of an identification with Demeter and her search for Persephone. But Isis also incorporated features of Artemis and Aphrodite. Her cult became very popular in Greece and later Rome, absorbing functions of still other gods, including the protection of sailors, of mothers, and the family. People seeking healing also appealed to Isis. In addition, her cult hosted mysteries that held out the promise of an afterlife for its initiates. 
The kindly maternal face of Isis and her cult with its all-embracing protection had a direct appeal for the less fortunate members of the population. The influence of ruler cults, common in the East in countries like Persia or Egypt, began to be felt in Greek city-states, and Hellenistic Greek kings such as the Ptolemies in Egypt enjoyed divine honors, which could be extended to their wives. The second Ptolemy, Philadelphus, established a cult for his wife, Arsinoe II, after her death in the early 3rd century BCE. Theocritus, a Sicilian Greek, who was a court poet in Alexandria for this royal couple, composed a poem that describes a visit of two Greek newcomer women to the city for the Adonia, a festival for a beloved of Aphrodite. The mythical youth Adonis was killed by a wild boar, and in classical Athens, the Adonia had been a sensual event when both married women and prostitutes engaged in a lamentation for his death. But in Alexandria, the festival is rich in pageantry, with crowds admiring lush surroundings of the court. The focus of the song and the events of the festival are on the patron, the soon-to-be deified queen. Participation in mystery cults expanded, including those introduced from elsewhere. The frenzied Phrygian rituals associated with Sibylle, whose priests castrated themselves, were introduced to Athens, where the cult of his mother of the gods was tamed. Sibylle's maternal powers dominated, and the cult was closely aligned with the governing of the city. Although with syncretism, polytheism had greatly expanded in the Greek world, at the same time a personal tendency was developing to prefer one god over others, paving the way for monotheism. Summary. For the Greeks, religion was a dimension of everyday life, permeating family, social, political, and cultural relationships. Performing cult rituals defined who they were, as individuals and as a collective. The gods, all-powerful, required satisfaction through gifts repeatedly offered, and these offerings frequently involved an animal sacrifice. Human and agricultural fertility were fostered by religious rituals that embraced both. Human crises were met with an appeal to the gods, presented in prayers or as petitions to oracles. Concerns about the finality of death were addressed by rituals of transformation that offered the assurances of a privileged afterlife. Women as well as men could access this special status, and together with other women, they exercised agency in rituals such as the Thesmophoria or the Menaic activities during festivals for Dionysus with an autonomy that was otherwise inaccessible to them in a patriarchal culture. Mythical narratives supplied the gods with a personality, but did not offer moral guidance. Where an offense had occurred, the gods could be invoked for retribution, as on Calira's tablet or those of the Sinidian women. Some human behavior incurred ritual pollution that, because it was regarded as contagious, left an individual isolated until ritually purified. The major cultural and political shifts of the Hellenistic period were unsettling and directed the religious attentions of the Greeks towards gods who could offer assurance and security. Thanks for listening to this episode. Don't forget to check the actual text for notes and additional information and graphics. And remember, every day is a learning day.